Dr. Koontz, I, I got to ask again, because you just didn't win me over last time. Is the world flat? <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, Huck Finn's opinion, which is that once he went up in the balloon in the little known sequel to Huck Finn called Tom Sawyer Abroad, he saw that indeed the world around the city of St. Louis was in fact round and that's how the horizon looked. But still he was right about his hometown, uh, St. Petersburg stand in for Hannibal, Missouri. St. Petersburg was flat, just like he always thought. So where you live, it is flat, but the rest of the thing is round. That's a really amazing answer. I did not know that there was a sequel to Huckleberry Finn. Uh, yeah, so Huck Mark Finn Twain itself is a sequel, right? Yeah, it is. That's that's the sequel to Tom Sawyer, and then there's Huck Finn, and then Mark Twain is in so many ways the archetypal American. I mean, I I, I absolutely love him, and even when he's ornery or crazy, and um, that's when he's at so, his best usually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was uh, heavily involved in a lot of speculative uh, financial ventures, stocks, mining, lots of stuff. The book Roughing It comes out of his adventures in the, I think, the silver camps huh. in Nevada. And so he was always uh, at least a little, if not a lot, short of cash. So he wrote Tom Sawyer Abroad, which is kind of sci-fi. Uh, they travel in a balloon, a flying airship. And then there's Tom Sawyer Detective. So he wrote a sci-fi novel and a detective novel with Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and Jim really? in them as a way to make cash. And these and these don't have anywhere near, I would imagine, the social impact of Huck Finn as a book. Uh no, not exactly. Although I I believe they did they did sell well. Um, huh. so there was that. I mean, is there uh, anything there... in them worth burning right now? The way you know Huck Finn's being removed from lists all over the place for years, I believe. Yeah, sure. And I think that yeah, of course there is because you were able to be honest about more things. I mean the. Probably the reason they're trying to get rid of Huck Finn is because Jim talks like an actual black American from the rural South. But the, if you actually read the book, the whole point of the book is that the desire for freedom is understandable and laudable in any human being. And Huck isn't actually supposed to feel bad about helping Jim get free. Right. I mean, if, if anything is a propaganda piece uh, as a, an abolitionist propaganda piece from that era, I think that's what that is. Uh, he was within his class and his time and his space and clearly his what entrepreneurial spirit, uh, mm -hmm. making money on the side however he could, uh, <laughs> saying, hey, hey, yeah. guys, notice this irony of us all being hypocrites and liars about this one factor of our society. And that, that, I thought that was ahead of its time. That's one of the yeah. reasons I respect the guy, even though, I mean, most of these guys are into some sort of corners of darkness at some point. Yeah, well, they're they're human beings, but because they lived at a certain time and were white males, they're they're uniquely evil. But I think if you look at like Tom Sawyer abroad, there's not only the same sort of humor that you get with like the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. It's a little less contrived, honestly, because he likes the characters better than he likes the Connecticut Yankee. And um, in addition to that, you get a lot of observations about the self-justifying nature of capital S science uh, in Tom Sawyer abroad. And then you get a, you get a send up of detective novels in Tom Sawyer detective. So I think it's all great. Although the jumping frog of Calaveras County is probably my, my favorite Mark Twain thing. Magical realism is a category of literature <laughs> coined out of Latino influenced California 
it's jumped into film. So Narcos is intentionally attempting magical realism in in film or in what HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're talking now, and we're going to try to make the jump into magical thinking, which is a little bit of a different thing, but it's striking me that uh, Mark Twain's approach to writing is something akin to magical realism uh, as it kind of expresses itself in Southwestern culture and whatnot. Um, South, 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 uh, Southwestern California culture and whatnot. And so here's what magical realism is. It is the perspective intentionally in, in the story that there are unseen things at work. It just period. And that can take a lot of different forms. It doesn't have to be fairies. Rarely is it ever fairies, but it is uh, sort of a, anti-secular there's higher power it may not be good (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh power behind the storytelling and uh at the very least i I think this conversation about mark twain's insights and his maybe dislike of what he saw as magical thinking at that time is as much a a part of his being aware of kind of bigger wheels turning than what was on the ground in the flat world around him yeah, big time, because the power and the reason that, you know, Huck Finn is a better book than its predecessor, Tom Sawyer, is because Twain gives you in Huck Finn something that feels a lot more like life, which is someone's perspective on things with necessary limitations. There's a major contrast here between Twain and someone who's very similar to him, although usually narrates in the third person, William Faulkner, also a writer of the American South, if you want to consider Missouri the South for these purposes. And it was called Southwestern literature at the time. Right, right. It uh, certainly it yeah. was Southern if yeah. you think of it. It was the Southwest. Old, the yeah, old way like of thinking, yeah. Wisconsin was the Northwest. This was the Southwest. Man, that really holds the trajectory right now, too. If you look at <laughs> a man. It does. It God. does. Yeah. And that's a whole that's a whole other can of worms but i think that there there's a big difference between that sort of perspective and there are there are american versions of this but i think especially someone who is a latin american author who patterns himself very closely his biggest influence is william faulkner and that is gabriel garcia marquez who when he talks about magical realism means means a kind of magical thinking where even if you're talking about history, the things that occur and that therefore become therefore imaginable or politically possible to your reader are in fact and quite self-consciously magical things. And so you, you, you write magical realism, you write magical fictions, even when they're about history, knowing that if you appear to be talking about something that has happened, your reader will now begin to, or your or your viewer in the case of a film, will be able to now imagine things about not only the past, but also about the present and the future because of that past that you didn't necessarily have to say, yeah, this is the way it was. And that's a, that's a totally different move from how Twain is talking about the recent past in the hmm. case of hmm. the days of slavery or the way that Faulkner talks about the entire, the entire history of the American South which is not to be magically realistic. He can be, they can both be symbolic. They can both have a distance between themselves and the person talking. But what they're trying to do is 
they're trying to give you the way that things were and why they were that way. Whereas what Garcia Marquez is doing is he is taking the way things were like, this is the way that an estate generally ran in Colombia. And he's going to give you a magical account of that family. And on some level, you know, it's not real, but on another level, you don't know it's not real. And the thing that we've talked about a lot with media ecology, it's much less subtle when it gets to film and it's much, much less subtle the distinction between magic and history when it gets to films or videos that are popular. Agreed. But how is this any different than Herodotus? Well, okay. <laughs> so, uh, I know I mispronounced him too, but yeah, no, um, he, Herodotus is point is <laughs> he, he has a little bit of distance and he's yoking himself fundamentally to relating history to you. And that means that you're allowed to make fun of him with someone like Garcia Marquez or almost anything you can find on Netflix at this point. They're not pretending like this is a story that they heard, like something that comes through in Herodotus is a, is a sort of fundamental good humor. You don't get that when you're being lectured about slavery in America in a Netflix show. Okay. There's, there's no fundamental good humor. There are angels and there are demons. In the case of Herodotus, <laughs> they'll give you a story about, you know, this or that race is actually descended from, you know, horses copulating with flowers or something. <laughs> and that's why they are this way. And that's also why they like to drink a lot of milk or something. I'm completely making this no, up. No, you're right. But, that, but there are times where that is. Yeah. 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 And you're just like, okay, whatever, you know, and, and but you can, but every time he's like, but this is how I heard it. So, right. You know, right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, Thucydides, when he begins to tell the story of the Peloponnesian war, self-consciously is correcting Herodotus, but Herodotus also isn't pretending, Hey, I'm going to tell you this pretty insane story. And then also I'm going to legislate for all the Greeks on the basis of it. Modern America is very different. We're running off pure fiction. People don't know what the Missouri Compromise is. They don't know the circumstances of the presidential election of 1860. None of that matters. You know a certain cartoonish version of the past, self-consciously or not. If you're Garcia Marquez, you know it's cartoonish because you made the cartoon. If you're not, you don't. You know a cartoonish version of the past. And then that promises a certain future for you. Now, that future may not come and then you become very embittered. But because you believe a cartoon, you're expecting cartoons now and in the future as well. And that becomes extremely politically dangerous and weighty. Okay, so cartoons. I don't want to lose that in the weeds of my own but you lost me about three sentences ago because I'm still trapped trying to figure out how it's not still just all fiction on some level. Like mm -hmm. you and I in a room mm -hmm. have agreement for today that mm -hmm. our story aligns. But the further that gets out into the aether of communication babble, uh, mm -hmm. the more that becomes a matter of perspective. 
that is nuanced at the very least and at times, you know, wrong, uh, very wrong. So how, when I talk about, uh, I'm sorry, pronounce him wrong again, uh, Herodotus, the idea here is that not that he would always, you know, be completely manipulating things the way that the overreach of current overlords is, mm-hmm. but that he was no slouch in knowing how to use the history as he told it in order to forward a very clear social political agenda. Not mm-hmm. that he's legislating it, but he wants it to eventually be what people think. And, right. and that this is, I don't think this is wrong. I, I, I think this is where history isn't as true as we want to think it is, generally speaking, as opposed to magical realism. Although today's magical realism may indeed be you know, the far end spectrum of just crafting the, the speech to put it in the guy's mouth. But again, this is how ancient history did do it. So how are we? I don't know. I shouldn't be asking you, like, how are we more civilized than them? I mean, well, yeah, obviously we're not. Uh, yeah, we're, we're the not. other way. Yeah. And that's the point yeah. you really want to make. So <laughs> right, what we've yeah. done, and, and so I, I want to, I don't want to invalidate your point that, that our thinking as magic by like our boilerplate American magical thinking, you came off the assembly line from high school, you think like a cartoon character, you believe in a cartoon world and getting outside of that. Mm-hmm is uh, to cease believing in magic. But you got to figure out which magic it is you've been believing in, right? Where are the fairies? Yeah, I think you do. And I notice this with different listeners, depending on age, because you, you got a different cartoon if you're 45 than if you're 20. You got a very different cartoon in public school. But it was maybe necessarily cartoonish. You've got the problem of scale. What do I propagate in a textbook? But you, I think fundamentally, as somebody that does this, I mean, we, you know, we do this every week. You don't talk about history for no purpose. There's a practical purpose we often talk about, like with, you know, if you get the book we talked about last week, the Aguirre book, you're going to wind up having an opinions about knives and uh, driving techniques. My, my first opinion was he needed a better cover design, but that's, you know, that's just picky. <laughs> okay. But I think in addition to that, the reason that you talk about it is not because you don't have an opinion or you don't want things to be a certain way. I, for one, would welcome a severely decentralized American continent. I think that would probably be better literally for everybody, even if they wouldn't desire that. But there are ways to respect the people who are reading you or listening to you. And there are ways to disrespect their capacities for judgment and choice. The reason that demagogues are good at what they do is because they have learned simply to disrespect anything worthwhile in a person, his capacity to think about what you're saying rather than to be told what to think, his capacity to make judgments, to make observations drawn from his own life. Some listener on every single episode knows more than you or I do about the topic we're discussing in some way. So respect, I think, is really all that you can give another person when you're talking or speaking in public, whether that's a show or whether that's a public debate of some kind. When you see systems break down, I think propaganda and the need to to put out your opinions, your thoughts, and your mandates even in a propagandistic way 
it's not like it's totally avoidable, certainly not at any kind of large group scale, but the frequency of it is avoidable. And that is the difference. I mean, like there is a certain kind of magical thinking particular to people of the boomer generation, but they are right in this about the media in this sense that the media was much less openly propagandistic. There was always propaganda in the sense of what they chose to cover and how long they were going to talk about it and what aspects and what images they would show you. But they weren't saying things like in the, in the article title, like the, I mean, really since January, it's gotten, it's gotten pretty blatant. Here's what you need to know. And the, and there, by the way, there is no gas shortage. So if you don't click on the article about the colonial pipeline, at least you know that there is no gas shortage. So I think that, what can be said for Herodotus is that he's trying to respect people's he's at least he's at least has enough sense to be embarrassed by some of the things that he tells. They're not embarrassed anymore. They're not embarrassed. And, and I don't even know if they're aware that they're lying most of the time. Well, that's an interesting counter thought there, I think, from what, where I was going to go and that they realize the power that they have and like a despot, no a certain level of, uh, what is it, tolerable capital expense. And so in order to retain status quo, which everybody wants to do, uh, yeah. they're, you know, they're willing to let things get worse somewhere else. And, and why not? Now, right. if we want to maybe continue the comparisons from, from last time uh, with the Latino American Southern Hemisphere tendency toward things like communist and socialist revolutions, yeah, maybe that would help tie this into the trends in U.S. politics that we're talking about. Yeah, I think that someone like Garcia Marquez, who is kind of openly leftist, is a good intro into this, because even if you, this this is an issue, if you don't have another modern foreign language at all, or even if you just don't know how to operate Google Translate to any degree, and if you're moving between like English and Spanish, or even English and Portuguese, you can, you probably get pretty good results if you want to poke around on foreign language news websites or history websites, because you will find out a lot more because what you're getting in English, and this goes for news as well as the authors that are promoted by the publishing industry in New York, you're, you're always getting a much more left-wing version of life and an assessment of things than you would know either if you had lived there or traveled there, or even if, like myself, you had simply read about it right, from any sort of in-country source, because Garcia Marquez is very leftist. You're not going to get any of Borges's political opinions about Argentina popularized in English. And there is a marvelous Colombian writer, not a novelist, but an aphorist. So very good for the Twitter age, Nicolas Gomez Davila, who wrote sometimes hilarious, but extremely observant and acute things from his palatial residence in Colombia. And very, very few people outside of Germany and Spanish-speaking countries have ever heard of him. Hmm. He got popularized in Germany by sort of an accident. So Garcia Marquez is a perfect example where one of the fathers of magical realism is able to give you a version of history in 100 years of solitude totally premised on magical thinking about how things happen and why they happen that way. That leads into what I think is something that is increasingly true in the United States, but has been true for a long time in Latin America. And that is that 
the dreams of socialism and communism of by some means, whether more gradual or less gradual, that all would be sufficiently provided for in a world that is obviously in a biological sense determined by scarcities, right? So I see socialism and communism as fundamentally, <laughs> let's say, anti-science in that they go against basic observational realities that creatures go where they go and live where they live and do what they do because of scarcities. If there's a scarcity of sunlight, then the, the trees that grow there or the fact that trees don't grow there will be what they are, which is very different from a place where there's an abundance of sunlight all times of the year. Socialism and communism, I understand as fundamental rejections of the existence of scarcity. That's obviously possible if you don't think that you or anyone else or your group are actually being determined by given scarcities. So, you know, in our country, we have a given scarcity of mineral X, right? So that's going to determine our foreign policy toward a country that has mineral X that we need to trade with, right? That would be sort of historical thinking like we talked about at the end of the last episode. Socialism and communism anywhere are going to be determined by the idea that the reason that we don't have mineral X is because the country that has it irrationally hates us, or the country that has it is racist against us, or sexist because our president is a woman, or whatever reason you want to come up with. And the reason that the left, even in relatively socially conservative, by comparison to the United States or Canada, socially conservative places like Brazil, is able to infinitely expand its kind of range of victim groups it serves is because the commonality between, say, Black Brazilians in Northeastern Brazil and homosexual white Brazilians in Sao Paulo, the reason that that is possible and that they can be allied is, I think, fundamentally because of the, the idea that all problems in life are due to someone else's, let's say, hex. And the real political solution to all of your problems is to undo someone else's hex and pronounce, you know, white magic upon you and your friends and black magic upon your enemies. So I think that socialism and communism dominate anywhere, in this case, Latin America, where magical thinking is sufficiently common that people have rejected the notion that there are certain hard facts that may determine life. The source of evil is a hex that must be expunged. Right. Yeah. And he has so many good things in there. The study of science is a study of scarcity. You can't have it. You can't have one without the other. Right. But magical modern politics rejects the possibility of true scarcity. Right. And again, yeah. begins yeah, to see the problems of society, the evils, less as a reality and more as, well, you said hex. I'm going to say a cleanliness religion and the uncleans just got to go. And I'd say you could find that in history uh, over and over again. Yeah. 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 And I think that is, that is why I, I think of leftism, let's say as a sort of umbrella term for socialism, communism, you know, various disagreements about how to come to power, how to exercise power. Leftism is, is defined by this revolt against nature. You don't, you don't think it's there. So that's also why like, 
a leftist regime is completely unpredictable in what its actual effect on your daily life will be besides the introduction of scarcities that didn't exist anymore or or beforehand right so so famine will come but no we lost him here for a minute but in addition to that you don't know it will be because am i back yeah yeah you're back you said uh famine will come and then like you know the the rapture happened and and we were all left with the famine of the word it was terrible go on that's right well the fbi was getting uncomfortable (laughs) with what i was saying (laughs) too much um Famine, famine will come precisely because the regime, any leftist regime, and I, I don't really want to get into what rightist might be or how to define that today. I've got an article that'll be coming out in the magazine for the Lutheran Classical College in a couple months. That article will be about the French Revolution. That's something we can talk about another time and how a right would define itself. But leftism such as it has existed in the west or or western influenced countries which is basically everywhere now since 1789 is going to be defined i think by a revolt against nature and in this sense fundamentally a revolt against scarcity broadly but that's going to lead to a revolt against the idea that a man doesn't get pregnant or a revolt against the idea that a woman does you know not does not have testicles those the reason that we're getting to absurdities like that is precisely because we're rejecting the idea that there is anything given especially given inequalities this place doesn't get as much sunlight as this other place so what's going on there is that you then get regimes that are going to be very indeterminate as to what they will do from one year to the next right so in the 1930s, the left in Brazil was tremendously influential, okay? So influential by the early 60s that it was suppressed by a military coup d'etat. However, that left in, say, the 1950s in Brazil was not advocating for gay marriage. Why is the left so changeable, which is part of its political power? It's changeable because it can co-opt anything, because since it's not attached to any sort of given thing, nature, male or female, it can shift and become whatever it wants to. A really good example of this in South America and in Brazil specifically is the power of liberation theology, which there's a whole historical story to be told there about the origins of that and which priests were involved specifically and who they became later. But liberation theology is a co-option, especially initially, really just of the Roman Catholic Church. And if there is an inst- a human institution <laughs> devoted to given things, just hard lines on any variety of things, it would be the Roman Catholic Church, you know, in once the 1950s. Once upon a time, at least, yeah. Yeah, once upon a time, right? So the the power of liberation theology was that it unmoored, especially the Catholic hierarchy in Latin America, and, and Brazil was in many ways a leader of these things. It unmoored the Catholic hierarchy from devotion to preserving those givens and moved that hierarchy into a place where it, it now was devoted to an unending struggle in favor of a group. Right. So preferential option for the poor, all of these things, and they'll co-opt whatever they need to. They'll co-opt the gospel of Luke. They'll, they'll take whatever they need to. Now liberation theology, the same methods and the same ways of reading the Bible are used really throughout 
left-wing Christianity of all denominations throughout the world as a way to bless and to further the, the leftist goals of any number of people and groups throughout the world. So I don't know if this completely undoes or affirms the Lutheran doctrine of the Pope as Antichrist, but I, I, I mean, really, it, it could go either ways, either way. And I, I know that there is an LCMS yeah. Lutheran out there that's going to hear what you said and be like, like mad in some sort of dogmatic way. And they're going to write a bunch sure. of stuff about it. But sure. I think, you know, what you're showing is the influence of the symbol that is the papacy and yeah, how far ranging right. that reach has always been, that there has really never been another head to the visible Christian church on earth that could claim it, that does claim it, and then also does the things the Bible says the Antichrist will do. So, you know, th that, that claim, I think, continues to stand even as he aligns himself with communo-fascism to destroy the vaunted uh, I'm going to say it wrong again, Herodotus, Western tradition of civilization. Um, how much more must we despise the Pope now? Or maybe at last we'll get back to wondering what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think in the case of Brazil, you're dealing with a country that in the 50s and 60s is still like roughly 93% Roman Catholic. So what, what, what you're doing there is you are able to co-opt the institution that is undoubtedly the most involved, far more than the government, the most involved in people's daily lives. And if you can do that, you can do anything. And there is a group that I'm not going to be talking about specifically today, but it's called the Puebla Group, which is multinational throughout Latin America. It's a leftist sort of organizing group. But to capture Brazil, you're capturing, yeah, I mean, it's an isolated media market because it's in Portuguese, but you're capturing an enormous country, a country with enormous potential of all kinds. And part of the shift into evangelical Protestantism in Brazil in, in recent decades, there are lots of reasons for that. One of the religious reasons is partly because they still have an indubitably Christian line to them that in some ways the Catholic Church has been unable to keep up, which sounds strange but the role that's filled in, say, you know, Anglo-America by like mainline Protestant churches, the Catholic Church <laughs> fills to a large degree today where, you know, you that's where you go for your reliable diet of left wing politics if you want to, in some sense, still be Christian. Hmm. So what I, what I pull out of that is that the sway of the papacy as a old money office equivalent to and even greater than it, uh, the monarchy of Britain, that under everyone's noses, they're running good portions of the world again via social cleanliness religion, managed for the sake of, oh, who knows what underneath when you get to the, uh, I always call it fuchsia mafia because of an old joke I heard, this lavender mafia, right? They got, whole, they got whole countries under their thumb that they can move when they want to move for the sake of anything. And that this is what people are afraid of with what JFK, right? A Catholic being a president, like, uh, oh my, you could be able to have th this religion that's a country that is yeah. over there in Italy with with weapons running your country uh, right. as a religion, and right. uh, yeah, right, yeah, I there, there's there's a lot in there, partly because. Catholicism represents one thing in a religious sense, which is sort of, you know, the Pope is Antichrist and 
and they're requiring this and they're requiring that because it possesses so much power, it means almost something completely different in theological terms than it does in political terms. I understand that those are united in in a figure, in an antichrist figure. Mm -hmm. But the issue here is that whether or not the Pope gives up on his, you know, claim to be the visible head of the Christian church by divine right. The political issue and the way of looking at this historically is always going to be somewhat different because you're dealing with the reality that he has been co-opted, that you've taken an institution which was successfully a weight in favor of, let's say, conservatism or traditionalism of all kinds throughout most of the 20th century. And you have successfully co-opted it for things. And this, this predates Francis. You have successfully co-opted it for things and for purposes and for movements that are obviously and ultimately corrosive of that very institution, the church, because unlike the church, those movements and peoples and groups do not recognize the existence of a given or created order to the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they can't. Yeah, they can't because fundamentally they are premised on magical rather than historical thinking. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and and magical thinking has no humility. Yeah. I don't think this is so different from the Reformation issue. It's just at that time they were focused on a completely different locus of scripture. And, yeah, right, and the right. Catholic Church had a, in some ways then, internally, a commitment to a different external proving of itself as the real Christianity, right. but co-opting the great Titanic of the name of Jesus Christ for an alternative purpose. I mean, that was kind of the complaint, you know, and <laughs> yeah, you know, right. that was just kind of yeah. it right there. Yeah. And, and so to have that happening again and to have that be something that others who are not Christians could rally behind, I mean, you don't have to adopt the antichrist part of it per se, although, I mean, he's kind of doing the opposite of what Jesus was like. Everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus as savior is like, he wanted us to love each other and just be nice. Right. Yeah. So that would be not starting totalitarian fascist regimes all over the world that cause great poverty in the name of equality. Right? That would be the yeah. opposite of what right. he wanted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> parallels in our own society, do we do that? I think the parallels are imperfect, but in the case that we'll, we'll talk about over the next 20 minutes or so of the abolition of slavery and how that leads to favelas, the parallels are obvious, but the reason they break down is because in some ways Brazil is a place that as much as it resembles the United States, it is always, there are certain factors that are always more extreme. So you're always dealing with a much more heterogeneous population in every sense. You're dealing with a frontier that in, in the case of the Amazon remains in to some degree unconquered or cannot be utilized in the way that America has successfully utilized even say Alaska. So there are many, many parallels. And that's why, I mean, I find comparing America to Brazil or America to Argentina, as we did last time, a little more fruitful than comparing America to Rome or even my favorite analogy, the Ottoman Empire, <laughs> because our historical situation as you know, European founded, but not exclusively European and kind of long-term, very unstable and troubled in our population movements and maybe in our brains. We resemble Brazil more than we resemble like, you know, ancient Anatolia. So, I mean, I, um, I know that in yeah. high school, there were people jumping up and down saying insane in the membrane, 
insane in the membrane over and over again, kind of at the top of their lungs. And so to <laughs> to suggest that we might, in yeah. fact, have called that upon ourselves, yeah. that's a bit austere, Dr. Coos. That's, that's austere. You're, you're, you're not realizing we live in a cartoon world where we can do whatever we want. And the right. ideas never have yeah, consequences right. at all. So talk to me about slavery in Brazil, just a bit yeah. historically. Yeah. Start, close. Yeah, my favorite thing to do when I would teach undergrads was just to show them this infographic. I don't even remember where I got it. Somebody can find it. Of it, it just showed little dots moving from Africa to the Americas for every slave ship, okay, that was on record. <laughs> and the thing that people did not realize is that in the whole scheme of things, almost no slaves came to the American South. <laughs> in the whole scheme of things, almost all slaves were sh that were shipped from West Africa. So that's that's the American slave trade. The Arab slave trade is bigger and older and maybe still going on. The American slave trade, most of those of the people shipped to the New World are shipped to Brazil. That's I think almost a majority, if not a majority, of slaves over time, over centuries, and then followed by the Caribbean broadly, then followed by the American South. And the proportions aren't even close. Can so, I interrupt you to put put maybe yeah. and scarecrows around the uh, slave trade still going on? That's a that's a scarecrows maybe still going on. You said, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we know there's slave trading going on. Why would anybody who's been doing it for thousands of years stop? Yeah, right. Yeah. If, if you can identify like a heinous human practice and then you're stupid enough to think that you've gotten rid of it. I'm not saying there's like some crazy guild where they all have secret handshakes right. or something, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not maybe. necessarily. Not necessarily. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so but then you have a huge, huge financial investment in human capital by yeah. old world money in brazil mm -hmm. <laughs> correct with missions all over the place if i'm not mistaken yeah so brazil is very brazilian slavery is very different from american slavery in at least two ways one is the sheer volume the other way is that portuguese and spanish colonies have a completely different religious policy which is if you own slaves they must be baptized and cared for by some catholic priest in some way conversion is not actually forced in the American South ever anywhere. The duty of care incumbent upon slaveholders is preached upon rather extensively, which is why most black Americans are at least by heritage, Baptist or Methodist. However, in Latin America, the religious policy is much more unified, which is how you get historically, you know, 90 plus percent of Brazilians of any race are gonna be Roman Catholic, at least nominally. I once met uh, four sisters, uh, sorry, two were sisters, two were sisters, all from Brazil, all live in the same mm -hmm. apartment complex as me, all named Maria. And then they went by their middle names, but like they told me it was like normal. <laughs> Everyone's Maria. Yeah. Everyone's yeah, Maria. Right. Right. There's a reason yeah. for that, right? It's Catholic reason. Yeah. There's a reason for that. And so in addition to that, one thing that's going to ultimately affect Brazilian politics, because Brazil's politics are, are usually going to track with the presence or absence of different racial groups, just like American politics, is that the American South is also unique in New World slavery in having a slave population that successfully reproduces. Hmm. So due to all kinds of factors, but especially raising sugarcane as they do in Brazil and the Caribbean as, as the cash crop, the sugarcane industry is fatal for everybody. So before 
blacks are dying in the Caribbean, whites are dying. That's partly why they switch the source of slave labor because they figure blacks will do better in a tropical environment. But even so, the American South is, from any of the reading that I've done, the only slave population that during slavery is successfully reproducing and even expanding domestically without slave trading adding to the population. That's not the case in Brazil. And so there are parts of Brazil that are just not conducive to slave labor, are not conducive to anything that requires slave labor. And ultimately, that's going to affect Brazilian politics, where the farther to the south and the east you go in Brazil, the whiter the population is going to be, and the farther to the north and the west, the more either black, especially in the northeast, or Indian uh, in the northwest, let's say broadly, although that's like the Amazon jungle, largely. This also affects how slavery ends in Brazil. There are plenty of wars in 19th century Brazil, which becomes the home of the Portuguese monarchy during the Napoleonic Wars. That's kind of an enormous and very, to outsiders, strange fact. But Brazil is an imperial country for much of the 19th century. Lots of wars for lots of reasons, but no war over slavery. And that is a kind of an alternate future in which slave labor and the crops that for which slave labor is actually a profitable endeavor simply uh, get outmoded by changes in transportation and changes in what might actually be profitable. So Brazil's rulers, both the upper classes and then the rulers of the Republic, once that's established, decide that European immigration will be much more beneficial for Brazil than shifting you know, continuing to accentuate slave labor, especially since the people that run the ocean in the 19th century, the British, won't let you traffic in slaves openly on their watch. Right. So the cost is getting to be too much That's to right. maintain That's them. Right. That's right. And, and the cost of maintaining the slave camp itself is a cost. And if you can just get some immigrant to pay 10 bucks an hour to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Living so wage. Is, living wage. That's, yeah. In some ways, in addition to that, you get a lot of manumission, which is in some ways very similar to the United States before the cotton gin, right? So the cotton gin really... Yeah, really is one of these examples of slavery right. being outmoded by a, by a right. tech. But yeah. It, yeah, if you look at somebody who you know dies before, say, the very early 1800s in the American South, there's a good chance he freed his slaves when he died. Things like that are going on in Brazil in the 19th century, such that most black Brazilians are actually already free, free right. when the, the golden law is handed down right. by so, the empress. But that, that just affirms our point, is that slavery never really stopped, just the format it takes has shifted, because it's really about debt and who can motivate you to move so you get fed yeah. in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. I got yeah. a side point. Can I run back yeah, to sure. um, sugarcane? <laughs> uh, first, uh, how... How is sugarcane labor more fatal than other types of, of labor? That's fascinating. I mean, it's just the heat, the bugs. Uh, it's, it's also the methodology, kind of the rate at which the intensity of the labor is part of the issue here. And then it's also being raised in places where tropical diseases are just a much bigger problem. So, you know, this is, um, this remains a problem in the United States in, say, Louisiana, which is where we, to this day, raise sugar cane in, in fairly large numbers in, in certain parishes of Louisiana. Oh, that's interesting. And huh. So, so it, it's really kind of a tropical medicine problem 
in many yeah, ways. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. And then from that then, so in Brazil, they just didn't have sugarcane. That just wasn't a crop for them. They, no, they did, especially in the Northeast. But you get a combination of both other economic ventures that would be profitable, like especially in the 19th century, anywhere in the world, railroads, but also mechanized agriculture. And that's going to affect everybody, no matter what crops right. you raise. Right, yeah. right. Okay. I'm, I'm very curious how big sugar plays into all the power of history and uh, yeah well a big a, sugar a... big sugar in the u.s is also connected to sugar beets in like michigan and north dakota and so it's kind of a the the evil ethnic lutheran is involved here well, it's, the it's been ethnic yeah lutheran. right yeah. it's been it's grown up <laughs> into and been co-opted by i would say you know big yeah. big grain general general yeah, mills right. is, is a pretty right well, let's just say Minneapolis is having a tough time. They're having a yeah, tough Minneapolis. Time. Yeah, Minneapolis. Yeah. So this is not entirely, you know, the the evil planter. Um, it's also the uh, the evil, you know, Nordic farmer in his combine. So yeah. <laughs> so so the labor <laughs> the labor force begins to change into yeah. European immigration, and right. you also then with more people having freedom, you have a move toward gathering, I suppose, uh, metropolizing. Yeah. 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 Well, you have a you have a dynamic in 19th century Brazil, very similar to England during the time of American colonization, where lots of people become unusable and unwanted in the country. And the same thing is going to happen in America at each world war, mass immigration inside the country, internal migration. So you get migration, especially by blacks in northeastern Brazil, farther south, down to the larger cities. And they're going to begin to build, not just camp, but build on vacant land. And this is the origin of the favela, which is just kind of the, you know, Brazilian Portuguese way to say what we would call a shanty town. So we've seen it, pictures of these from any movie yeah. or, or thing in the, yeah. the Southern Hemisphere where you look at the Hollywood hillside. Movies. Yeah, you look yeah. at the hillside, it's just filled with like houses kind of right they're yes, they're places right. to live their abodes but I'm right. really, if i'm not mistaken one of the fast and furious movies you know they spend some time up in one of these places yeah yeah it's not that possible, that's, the, that's not the wreck but you know obama <laughs> and pope francis have both visited a favela although you you never see politicians visiting homeless encampments in fresno I mean, maybe they do, but not national politicians, certainly not international politics. I'm, I'm waiting for like the president of Mexico to visit a shanty town somewhere in like Oregon. No, it's always like, optics. That's when it's we'll optics. Know. It's always optics. I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, of all the places to try to keep a international figure safe, a pile of cardboard boxes and wood on a hill. Yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> well, okay. The, the reason the reason that that can happen is because the favelas represent something that I think in a chaotic, but potentially creative way, if you're somebody that lives there can actually be to your benefit, which is mm -hmm. order is not spontaneous, but also people abhor the absence of order. And so where there is spontaneous building, or relatively spontaneous building that is through benign neglect, the authorities just have nothing to do with you. You can build and you can begin to build your own sorts of authority. And what happens in favelas over time, and they expand enormously as Brazil continues to urbanize throughout the 20th century, is you begin to get what are going to be almost universally identified as crime syndicates 
running favelas. So right. strong man has uh, to emerge. I mean, yeah. Well, you, so, you watch The Godfather, right? Everybody, before you quit TV, you, you even watch I, the, yeah. even I have seen The Godfather. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's so it's yeah. a universal type. Yeah. It's a universal type. It applies right. to every migrant society. I think. I yeah. mean, it's, you can't avoid it. So a crime syndicate is not the absence of order. It's just an it it, it is an order which at least receives no state sanction. I'm, I'm trying say, to yeah, say it in yeah, the most yeah. neutral possible but, way. I mean, the Godfather convinced me of this, which recognizes that its people are better off with it doing things against the state mm-hmm. than with mm-hmm. it just staying out of the way and letting the state hurt or not yeah. protect its people. It's a native need to tribally protect. I'm not going to say that the way the Italians did it in Chicago was cool. I'm Mm -hmm. just saying that you're, if someone doesn't rise up to take the crown, then someone's going to rise up to take the crown and Mm -hmm. you know it it has to happen. And when the crown is so far away that all anyone does is suffer, eventually Mm -hmm. someone will rise up to take the crown. It it, good, good or bad. Doesn't matter. That's a brief history of power. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you're getting with a favela is a kind of order. Now that order, this is something to notice about both Brazilian politics, but also if you do enough digging, and we talked about this with the rise of Las Vegas, is that when you get new places, you get new spaces, those spaces are going to be defined by some kind of human order. And that sometimes the differences between crime and government, like okay politics and bad politics, really doesn't just blur, it disappears. So there are some Brazilian crime syndicates that are called things like Red Command because they started out as ostensibly left-wing guerrilla movements. (laughs) Same dynamic happens in Colombia with the FARC, you know. They're extremely successful narco traffickers. Ostensibly, they're also like a monarchist left wing or monarchist Marxist left wing party. So what you get is in is not order that's necessarily spontaneous. It's highly organized. It's it's generally going to be fairly disciplined, hierarchical. And that order will give you some sense of how life works. I'm not romanticizing any of this. I'm just trying to say that this exists until the state intervenes, this exists basically entirely outside the state's cognizance or control. Right, exactly. So you can't you can't stop it from happening around you when it happens. Yeah. The strong man rises, which is again where I'm just going to go ahead and say it right now. If you're out there and you see the world the way that it is, let me just tell you two things. First, if you're going to be conquered, it's very important you be prepared to submit to your conqueror and say, here's why I'm of benefit to you. Here is how I can be your best friend. And that way, play a role in his new, more just society than the current baby-killing one we live in. Secondarily, long before that happens, you might just reach out to whatever God you pray to and say, Hey, God, before I have to submit my need to the conqueror for the good of my neighborhood, can I be the conqueror? I don't want to use a sword, by the way. Throw that up there and see what happens. And I'm honestly uh, telling you that that's the way to go. Because it would be better to be an honest and just strong man making a careful way through the school board of American politics so as to benefit my neighborhood than to have to, I don't know, fulfill whatever zombie apocalypse bad idea you want to have come as the option, you know, the other option. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that the, something, maybe a caution to put here is that the presence of crime and the reason that I'm not romanticizing this and I'm trying super hard to be more neutral maybe than I usually am is because the presence of crime also appears to be endemic 
to the rise of these kinds of order. Right. Not that the state is thereby absolved or that the state is free of crime. In the next hour, next episode, really, we're going to be talking about how close that nexus is in many ways in Brazil and, and also in the U.S. But that the way that order arises in the absence of some sort of forethought, right? So what's the difference between a favela and like a, 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 a conscious colony, such as also exists mm. in other parts of Brazil? I mean, the Brazilian Lutherans are largely Germans who sometimes actually settled in organized colonies that didn't have some of the sadnesses that we've mentioned with the Lutherans in the Mississippi River Valley before. The difference is that when you plan for an order that actually ensures some respect, let's say, for the life and property of others, then, yeah, it's not going to be perfect. America was never perfect, but it was ordered toward human goods, regardless of the human. That was the idea. That's, that's what a colony should be. The difference is that in, in a favela, it's not, it's not that there's no protection for life. There's no order. There's no sense of what's going to happen next. There is, but it's generally ordered toward the good of the person on top and not in any sense toward you, except insofar as you serve the person on top. And that is something that is, I think, how especially you can compel people into crime it's not only that there's some sort of internal human motivation that is like engaged by a social or political order that says it's okay to steal, it's okay to loot. There's also the permission granted. And so like when I, we're going to talk about crime rates in Brazil in the next episode, when I see crime of all kinds, especially violent crime, expanding as rapidly and enormously as it has in the United States in the past 15 months, I don't ask myself just like, what's wrong with people? Why aren't people nice? <laughs> I ask myself, who is letting this happen? Hmm. Who is incentivizing this? Because the presence of crime in a favela is not entirely accidental. It doesn't just happen. Right. Because it's people are just going to grip it down. He ain't going to let someone else mess on his turf. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. unless there is just complete war of all against all, unless that's the case unless we're living in some sort of fictitious Lockean state of nature, someone is permitting crime to keep going on as it has. And the question, especially that we'll save for the next episode and as we talk about Bolsonaro is, will someone do anything about this or what happens if this goes on as it has and the rise of the favela and also Later on, as you can tell from the presence of Obama or the presence of Francis in a favela, it's increasing political importance to lots of things, but especially the main leftist party in Brazil, the Workers' Party. Well, that's because they're tribes again, right? So it's like exactly, the true tribalism. Yeah. Exactly. And so at some point, the political machine is no longer asking, maybe never it was, it never was. It's no longer asking, how can we better people's lives? How can we bring electricity to the favela? How can we bring sanitation or you know uh, some kind of sewer system to the favela we just need the favela to show up for a war yes and we need it to show up for a war that's yeah. all we need yeah exactly that's all exactly. we need yeah goodness and gracious dr Kuntz, you make me feel sad about living on this planet and we haven't even gotten <laughs> to say the word okies 
yet. No. Yeah. Okies in Southern California. We did make the comparison more or less, uh, you know, I think, right? Are, how is this different from Hooverville's? There was an effort at that time to better lives, maybe? Is that is that kind of, again, the point we just finished with? Well, I think that that is right. And, and Southern California does not vote for communism for a very long time. I mean, there's a reason that the Orange County Airport is named after one of Hollywood's only indubitable anti-communist actors, John Wayne. However, the enormous expansion of the defense industry in the run-up and then the aftermath of World War II in Southern California is also not accidental. And a question you have to ask yourself about America in comparison to Brazil is maybe, maybe we've had the same dynamics all along. They just have progressed at differing rates. So we fought a war over slavery instead of not. And maybe we were developing enormous protected classes that were living off of the largesse of the regime. And we were just doing it at a different rate and calling it something like my dad works for this aerospace company instead of if I show up at this pole, I will get food and water for the next several months. But that's increasingly what it's looking like in our city. Exactly. Yep. Yep. It's becoming more sort of openly parallel and obviously Brazilian in a way that I think in 1960 was not the case. Before we close up this hour here, masks, CDC, just yeah. this past weekend. Always the news on the weekend with the CDC. They like it that way. They think <laughs> it's clever, right? Yeah. right? Don't yeah. miss it. Mm-hmm. They know how they gaslight. They know what they're doing. Yeah. So everyone's free as long as you're vaccinated. I went shopping yesterday. I had heard that Starbucks would not require masks. I did not make it to Starbucks. It'll be a long time before I visit a Starbucks again. But I did go to Yoldi Home Depot, which communists though they be, <laughs> sell certain things I need in this area. And so I bought the overlords. Masks were required. Everyone was wearing masks. Um, And and this is in spite of the CDC announcement. And in spite of the governor of this state saying he plans to make an announcement soon, because I don't know. He thinks, he thinks, I mean, he does make a difference, but not actually. I mean, not, uh, yeah. He He wouldn't, he wouldn't make a difference unless you were trained to care. Say, say, say that again. I mean, what do you mean? (laughs) I I mean that, I mean that democracy relies upon at this scale, okay, at this scale. So I don't have a problem with your town council or something where the person has to live with you. But at this scale, democracy relies on the idea that you care, that it actually matters to you. Right. right? And so that's why you get different rates of mask compliance across the nation, even where mandates are the same or where at some point almost everybody had a mandate almost everybody had a mask mandate, right? but there were always different levels of public compliance, different levels of people wearing masks outdoors, different levels of people double masking. And the only way to explain that is that you get different levels of human beings caring and following and obeying. So the power that people have over you in a democracy or in something where consent is required is always the power for of you to care if you just don't care and you and I were together long before the mask mandate was removed and I just I just I mean something just deeply bothers my appalachia about wearing a muzzle in public so I just never have and nobody did anything and you saw the people 
you know, not bothered. Nobody was bothering me. I mean, we were right. I was, I was in Illinois. I know. I know. It got darker though, man. It got darker. <laughs> I bet it did. It's pretty rough here. I mean, you're, yeah. you will stand alone and you will not get checked out. So, I mean, you can, you can just not get checked out places. And so you don't go to those places. What we were talking a little bit ago about permission to lie. Yeah. Okay, so permission to lie looks like this. It's when you go shopping with the thing over your face, you walk in the yeah. door with it over your face, you pull it under your nose as soon as you're out of sight because nobody who works there is going to see you, and so you're just going to get shame eyes by, from people. So yeah. so you breathe yeah. through your nose because you know that that's safe, and you do that the entire time. And if you're really feeling kind of not so well, you just go ahead and pull it down, and you breathe for a little bit, and then yeah. as soon as you're going to go back up and check out, you pull that thing back up over your nose. And look at that. I'm a liar. I've been made a liar. I've been shamed right. into lying. Right. Correct. That's, that's how this permission right. granted thing really eats at yeah. not just you individually, but the whole society. No, that's totally true. And it, and it breaks you down. It breaks you down because you're like, you're, you're in the same, you're in the same state that you were when you were, I don't know, four and you wanted to take your sandals off in the store and your mom didn't want you to take your sandals off. You know, you're in the you're in the same humiliating, absurd situation in daily life anywhere you go. Or the alternative is you say, this is great. This is good. I love it. I will enforce it upon other people. I mean, it, it is it is a study. And this is where I think <laughs> this is where I think America is dystopian in a way that Latin America can't be because we have populations accustomed to making and enforcing and following rules that countries and places that are more accustomed to not dealing with rules like speedy uh, gonzalez you, comes to mind i don't know if that's terrible of me to say or well, not no, but no, he really does uh, you know i got to uh, the the example that that comes to mind is when ed calderon was on joe rogan and Ed Calderon, I think, is from like northern Mexico. Right, right. Dude's and he awesome. had just he had, we've mentioned this before. And he had just been in Kentucky. And he said, it's just he, he's he's like, it was just like home. You know, it, it's just he said it's just white Mexico, which <laughs> is there are parts of America, and this is the part of America that I'm from, which is why masks bother me so much on just a human level. Rule why do I care about rule? I don't care about rules, just leave me alone, you know. But suburban and urbanized places are not like that no matter where you go and so and i i don't think all rural places are even like that and what happens in that case and i i think about this a lot with like you know minnesota my wife is from minnesota is that something like masks is extremely i don't know i'll use the word abusive to a population that is so nice and helpful and and conscientious and obliging, right? Public life is more pleasant in a place like Minnesota, generally, without masks, than it is where I grew up, because people expect each other and are with each other nice and conscientious and obliging and polite in an almost unfailing way. And then you tell those people, here's another rule that feels extremely awkward and weird, but you have to do it. And you know what, they're gonna do it. Because they're nice and they're obliging and they're conscientious and they don't want to do the wrong thing. Well, it's going to help my neighbor, don't you know? Exactly. And so I, that, I mean, I mask mandates for, I don't know, someone with my instincts, I don't care about because someone with my instincts just isn't going to do it because it's a rule. But someone with different instincts, who's probably a better human being, let's be honest. Well, you're a big mean face when you talk. Like I, that. Yeah, no question. Totally angry person all the time. Someone with better, who's just a better human being, obliging, conscientious, all this sort of thing is 
I feel you're doing something horrible to that person when you're making him lie to himself, either about the fact that something much flimsier than a painting mask is going to keep this disease out of him and out of other people any more than the paint droplets are going to be stopped by a much more robust mask, or you're making him lie about whether he's actually wearing the mask all the time, like he's supposed to, like a good boy. The and liturgy, that is, ooh, go, that's go, go. destructive. That is just destructive of human beings and their sense of integrity or self. And so to me, that is that is the most cynical form of magical thinking possible. Yeah, the liturgy of demoralization was what right. I was I wanted to hop in there and yeah. and the way in which uh, by habit that is gradually compelled into your world and then normalized uh, you are forced into a religion that won't even tell you it's a religion. Here at A Brief History of Power, two white guys were unmasking your magical thinking and always moving at the speed of fear. We'll be back next week with more.